we can now quickly move into part two, the race between consciousness and catastrophe, key ideas for a world at risk. The abstract, given the extraordinary global threats facing the world, the question that naturally arises is how can integral studies and integral practitioners contribute most effectively to help resolve the great challenges of our times? This paper first explores integral ideas that might be particularly helpful and then investigates ways in which individual integral practitioners can identify and optimize their own contributions. Those of us in the integral movement assume that integral ideas can make significant contributions to the culture and that part of our work is to implement these ideas and make them better known. Of course, each of us prioritizes these ideas differently. In fact, let me encourage you to stop for a moment and do an experiential exercise. Take a moment to relax, breathe, or meditate. Then ask yourself what integral ideas could be most beneficial to our culture and our world. Allow your mind to bring to awareness those ideas that you feel are most important for us to communicate to the larger culture. What follows are seven ideas, actually hypotheses, that seem especially important to me. One, an integral vision is possible, applicable, and valuable. Much could be said about this idea. However, since everyone actively involved in the integral movement is basing a significant part of their life on this assumption, we can probably take it as a common tenet of our community. And it probably is a common tenet, but it is an important one, isn't it? I mean, we are basically here in agreement of the fact that there is a new and extremely helpful way to look at the world and that the world itself would benefit from this. And it's not often that whatever you get involved with, you get involved with a vision that could really have world-changing effects. Yeah, and this, if we separate the current state of the integral vision from the general thrust that it is possible and desirable to to find the fullest and most integrative picture of reality that we can, then that general desire, that general thrust, certainly seems to be, I think everyone in our community would probably agree, seems to be a source of, of truth, goodness, and beauty, basically. Yeah, yeah. And to pull those qualities it both expresses and moves us towards those qualities, it feels like. Right. That's well put. Item two, all perceptions reflect perspectives, and all perspectives are partial and selective. Perception both reveals and conceals, clarifies and obscures. What is crucial to recognize is that all perceptions reflect perspectives, and all perspectives are selective. When this goes unrecognized, problems ensue which I understand as follows. For example, to the extent that any perception is not recognized as perspectival and therefore as partial, selective, and relative, it will produce a corresponding experience, worldview, and self-sense that will be assumed to be accurate and correct and will therefore likely go in question, result in self-deception and delusion, create suffering, reinforce one's current belief system and worldview, serve a defensive legitimizing function, i.e. it will serve to defend and preserve the current self-sense and developmental level rather than fostering further development. Integral practitioners will therefore attempt to recognize unhelpful partial perspectives in both themselves and others, 
release and integrate these limited, harmful perspectives into more encompassing, contextually wider and developmentally deeper meta-perspectives and intro-A perspectivalism. Beyond this, integral practitioners will eventually aim to dissolve all perspectives into pure awareness. From this pure awareness, perspectives can then emerge. As they reemerge, helpful meta-perspectives can be intuitively selected with their partial perspectival nature recognized, their integral a-perspectival potentials realized, and their spiritual ground remembered. Integral disciplines can therefore be seen as perspectival therapies and integral practitioners as perspectival therapists. There's so many good ideas in that item number two, it's hard to know where, where to begin. But central to them, clearly, is the notion of perspective. And integral theory makes perspectives kind of crucial to the entire vision, doesn't it? It does, and uh, I and uh, probably many, many, many thousands of others are hoping, <laughs> hoping you'll uh, you'll be able to finish uh, the second volume, which really <laughs> lays this out in a very, very deep and sophisticated way. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, this is one of the things which uh, woke uh, woke me to the importance of perspectives, and I think this is. It's just hard to overestimate, it seems, how important the recognition that that we see things from particular perspectives is. I think there were a lot of ideas in what you just read, and we could pick this up in any number of ways, but perhaps one of the most important is, is the point that integral theories or integral work integral practitioners are functioning as perspectival therapists, really trying to recognize our own limited perspectives and to help the recognition and release of limited perspectives in others. Yeah, exactly. And I think perspectival therapy and perspectival therapists is a, a wonderful phrases. I've never heard them before, but they point to exactly what, you know, one of the very, very, very main thrusts of integral theory is, and that is to basically show that everybody is right by showing that everybody is true but partial, that everybody has a perspective that has some component of truth to it. No human mind is capable of producing 100% error. And so there's something positive and useful to be had from virtually any human discipline and human belief. But being able to bring them together to free them by limiting them and then find coherent frameworks that bring them together are one of the most important aspects for our, our post postmodern world. And perspectival therapy is exactly what that does. It helps free a perspective by acknowledging its limited truth and then placing that limited truth alongside others so that we have increasingly bigger pictures. But those bigger pictures then have less and less and less absolutism, less and less fundamentalism, less and less basically narcissism. And that allows these big pictures to be liberating without themselves falling into the trap of absolutism or having the truth and so on. And it's a, it's a really quite new way of approaching human knowledge and how it fits together. And it allows the emergence of the first big pictures in the integral age. 
and it's exactly perspectival therapy that's doing it. So I, I really love that, that whole way that you dealt with this. Well, good. Well, thank you. Um, well, I think we're going to hopefully we're going to see a lot more on this coming out uh, from many people, and uh, hopefully, let me just point out that uh, to anyone who doesn't know that you have some major excerpts and discussions of this whole topic up on the web. Right. Uh, and I can't recall exactly how it's listed. Perhaps you can tell people, Ken, because yeah, you just go to KenWilbur.com and look under um, professional writing and then look for excerpts and excerpts a b c d are up there and deal with this topic uh, in depth and these are excerpts from volume two of the cosmos trilogy volume two being the volume that comes after sex ecology spirituality yeah and they're, they're clearly the most sophisticated writings i've seen on this topic and uh, uh you know i'm just i'm delighted you put them up on the web and they're available Thank you. Um, point number three, and we return here to probably one of the two or three topics we have uh, emphasized the most. Adult development is possible. This, too, is an axiom of the integral community. However, it is far from axiomatic in the larger culture. In fact, it is rarely recognized, and the costs are enormous. If the possibility of adult development becomes widely appreciated, it could transform the culture. Its implications are remarkable, and three in particular stand out. A, normality is not the ceiling of human possibilities. What we have taken to be normality is looking more and more like an unnecessary form of collective developmental arrest. B, further reaches of development are possible. In our culture, higher reaches of mental maturation remain almost entirely unrecognized. This means that our highest possibilities, our greatest potentials, our possible powers go unrecognized and unrealized. This has always been a tragedy for individuals. However, at the present time, it is also a social and global tragedy. C. Many contemporary cultural conflicts appear to reflect clashes between different developmental levels, such as pre-modern, modern, and post-modern worldviews. However, the double tragedy is that these cross-level clashes are not recognized for what they are, yet when the differing developmental levels underlying culture clashes go unrecognized, then effective communication, reconciliation, and healing are extremely difficult. In other words, by not recognizing development, we are basically committing ourselves to continual cultural and, in some cases, actual physical warfare. Yeah, and I, well, you've, you've, you've said it, we've talked about this somewhat already, and you've said, said it well in several places that uh, when this isn't recognized, no amount of argument will change minds. Exactly. It's one of the really difficult issues is that somebody who is at, let's say, a fundamentalist, absolutistic, mythic membership level of development, ethnocentric, believing in a single truth, one and only truth, and that you have to adopt that truth for personal salvation, or you are an infidel, a pagan, you will burn in hell forever. Somebody like that, it, it sounds in kind of a mean-spirited worldview, 
the way I've described it, and in a certain sense it is, but it's not intentional on the part of these individuals. It is, in fact, the best worldview that they can manage at that developmental stage. I mean, we're all starting at square one with the capacity to take no perspectives. And then each developmental stage, each major stage, is marked by the increase in a capacity to take yet another perspective. So it goes from being able to take no perspectives to being able to take a first-person perspective to being able to take a second-person perspective to being able to take a third-person perspective and then a fourth-person perspective and so on. And the individual at the fundamentalist level is taking a second-person perspective. And they believe, if they're of the Christian variety, for example, that the Bible contains the literal truth. And if you come in and you give them all sorts of scientific evidence and you say, look, here's the fossil record, uh, and they go, oh, yes, the fossil record. The Lord created that on the fourth day. And you go, oh, okay. It remains the fact that the mind can only see what it has tools to see. And if it doesn't have the tools to see third-person perspective truths, then it's just not capable of doing it. And no amount of argument in terms of scientific facts with a fundamentalist is going to change their mind. Now, it's the same way with somebody who believes merely in science, merely in a third-person perspective. And postmodernists come in with their fourth-person perspective, reflecting on science, and try to show how much of science is cultural and relative and social product. Somebody who only is at the scientific level is not going to be able to understand that truth. So no amount of argument will change their minds. And likewise, somebody who is at the postmodern stage, no amount of argument will convince them that integral views are possible because it's not something that will fit into their mental apparatus. So all of a sudden, we appear to be a universe of balkanized worldviews. And in many ways, that's true. But the only way to handle that is to start seeing that and to start realizing that and to start making room for the fact that human beings latch on to these different stages of development. While at those stages, they can see only what those stages will let them. And understanding that is the first step in arranging an enlightened society that makes room for those stages and makes every stage a station of life. People have the right to stop at whatever stage they want. So um, instead of picking one stage and making it the one and only, we create a society where individuals at any stage are allowed to live and breathe and have all the freedoms of a representative democratic society. But without understanding this, we inherently, each of these stages will believe that only its own truth is real, and therefore we will have the attempt to legislate the others out of existence. And this constant culture war is, of course, in fact, uh, very dangerous. It's very dangerous to democratic freedoms, and it also just keeps the mind in a pretty narrow state. So recognizing development for a culture at large, that's just one reason. There are just so many reasons that it is an extremely 
important issue. And it's also tragic that the fact that so many people don't know that there are multiple intelligences and that these intelligences continue to grow, that there are stages to them and they grow from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric and higher, people are being robbed of their birthright. They're having stolen from them the promise and capacity to grow and develop into their own highest potentials. And those highest potentials are just being lied about. They're just not being told that they're even there and that there are, is a path, growth, development to these higher potentials. And that's just flat-out criminal. That's just a horrid thing to do to an individual, especially then claim it's a free society. It's anything but a free society. So these are just some of the issues that not taking development into account does. And so, of course, the, what the integral vision does is development is not the whole story, but it's an important part of the story that the integral vision reintroduces to reality and with plenty of evidence and uh, a lot of encouragement. But good heavens, this is, as you say now, it's not just a threat to individuals. It's a threat to global issues. We can't deal with global, world-centric climate change, for example, with individuals that are not yet at a global, world-centric stage of development. So it is not only hurting individuals, it is potentially contributing to worldwide catastrophe in terms of a lack of understanding and action geared towards those levels of development that are a little bit higher up the scale and that alone can see worldwide problems and act on them. But we're ignorant of this. We say nothing about this. We expect one size fits all and one psychology to fit all. And with those blinders on, we go marching down the road. And it is indeed in your balance between consciousness and catastrophe is one of the main items that tilts towards catastrophe. Yeah, it is. It really does. It does seem that way. And uh, clearly that's why one of the one of the central ideas for that it may be that the integral community can contribute to society is the increasing recognition of the both reality and importance of adult developmental possibilities. Right. Yeah, what Maslow called the further reaches of human potential. Exactly. And those further reaches, there is a path to them, and it's called development. Well, you and I could wring our hands about that one uh, indefinitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, item number four, spiritual disciplines can catalyze development. Preliminary research on meditation supports the idea that it can foster certain kinds of development. However, two great research projects await us. The first project is to identify precisely which qualities of heart and mind, or more technically, which specific capacity states and developmental lines are enhanced by contemplative practices. Of course, this project will eventually turn out to be far more complex. Eventually, the question will become, which specific capacities and developmental lines are enhanced by which practices and which people under what conditions? In other words, an, an entire aqua consideration. A second crucial research project 
will be to discern how to optimize healing and development. In other words, what combination of contemplative, therapeutic, lifestyle, pharmacological, and other interventions will optimize healing, development, and well-being. These are all items that are part of the fact that what research has demonstrated is that spirituality accelerates growth through these stages of development. Yeah, and clearly this is one of the, you know, this this is the great gift of these contemplative practices that they they do seem to do this. Now, exactly how they do do it as you were just stating, uh it remains to be discovered. And there's a big mapping project awaiting us, but the right. fact they do seem to do this and that we have these tools, not only that development is possible, not only that it's possible, for example, to grow in love or kindness or wisdom, but there are actually technologies available to help us do that. Well, this is crucial, and I think we'll be probably be getting into this topic. Yeah, and it's one of um, even more crucial by the fact that they seem to be some of almost the only technologies that have at least empirically been demonstrated to move people through stages of development. When individuals reach adulthood, um, after having gone through anywhere from three to six or more major transformations, the mind seems to just kind of close down a bit. And most individuals, as adults, remain more or less at the stages of development that they're already at in their early 20s. And yeah, that wonderful metaphor of culture as magnet, that culture tends to pull ex- people up to the conventional level, but then retired movement beyond. Exactly, exactly. The cultural center of gravity, if you're below that, it will pull you up to it, and if you try to go beyond it, it will pull you down. It'll put you on a funeral path. <laughs> So times past. <laughs> but meditation has been demonstrated empirically to move people along these stages of growth. Now, and, and that's two important things. It does not skip any stages of growth. Those stages are still there, but it does accelerate people's movement through it. And that in itself should be a banner headline in the New York Times because stages of growth and development, I mean, most of the world's problems come from people being at lower stages of capacity for love and care and concern and rationality. Finding ways to actually get people to higher stages should be one of mankind's two or three most urgent tasks. Well, got news for you. We have an answer. We know technologies that will do that. And the fact that that's not getting worldwide attention is truly criminal. So um, that is a very strong item on your list and certainly on mine too. Uh, spiritual disciplines can catalyze development. Yeah, and so, I just want to make sure something you said uh, doesn't get lost there because you said said, said in a very powerful way, and that is the, the recognition and uh, popularization of the, of the recognition that that uh, development is possible and can be accelerated by technologies we currently have, psychotechnologies, spiritual technologies, should be one of the two or three most important human projects. Uh, right. that's, a, that's a powerful statement. Yeah, and I think can be 
rather easily demonstrated if you just look at all of the qualities of humankind that are needed and re- desperately love, compassion, care, rationality, morality, all of those are developmental factors. I mean, even famine has been demonstrated by Amrat Sen, the great Nobel Prize winning economist, to never have occurred in a democratic society. And democratic societies are the product of moral stage five social contract growth. And the only thing that's been demonstrated to move people into those stages is meditation. Therefore, if you really want to cure world hunger, get behind meditation. I mean, it's just almost any problem that the world faces. It faces because individuals are not highly or deeply developed. And when we find a technology that will do that, that is a banner headline. So... Let us keep that in mind. And it goes with your next point, five, which I think is so important. There are two very different kinds of religion. One of the reasons that we don't know and that the world doesn't know about what meditation will do is that they confuse contemplative practice and religion with the first kind of religion. So your two types is it is rarely recognized that there are two crucially different kinds of religion. These two are conventional narrative religion and transconventional psychotechnologies. Conventional narrative religion centers around a story, technically a narrative, that is to be believed. The primary means of salvation is thought to be through belief in the story. Those who believe are saved and are our brothers and sisters. Those who don't believe are damned and are heathens to be converted. Salvation comes from faith as a central theme of this kind of religion. Integral practitioners will recognize this conventional narrative religion as an expression of James Fowler's stages of mythic, literal, and synthetic conventional faith. Tragically, this is the only kind of religion that mainstream culture and media usually recognize. Consequently, the second kind of religion is therefore either overlooked or confused with conventional narrative religion, namely transconventional psychotechnologies. The second kind of religion focuses on psychotechnologies, which are ways of training the mind. The central theme of this kind of religion is that it is possible and necessary to train the mind, metaphorically the heart, in order to foster mental and spiritual maturation and well-being. And it is tragic that the media will think that what, for example, Father Thomas Keating, a truly realized saint who uses contemplative prayer, that they'll think that what Father Thomas Keating is doing is the same as what, let's say, Pat Robertson is doing. And what Genpo Roshi is doing is the same as what Oral Roberts is doing. And they have no real keen or even vague understanding of the extraordinarily important difference between these two kinds of spirituality. And so you can't get a hearing of all of the extraordinary findings about these psychotechnologies of meditation because it's just too close, in their minds, to what somebody bombing an abortion clinic in South Carolina believes in. 
to them there's just religion and religion is essentially pre-rational mythic narrative nonsense yep that's <laughs> that's one of the challenges of our time yeah. that's for my rant <laughs> <laughs> well, we can forgive you for that one. <laughs> <It's an important laughs> one. 